Hello and welcome to the Double Double. My name is David Dixon and it is Thursday, June 25th here in New York City. Hope everyone is doing well. They're staying safe and healthy as we continue to fight and battle against the coronavirus pandemic. Coming up today on, on the podcast is a really interesting interview I recorded last week with the head women's basketball coach at Rhode Island College, uh, Jenna Cosgrove. She was the 2019-2020 Little East Conference Women's Coach of the Year. Uh, the anchor women went 22-5, and five, and they are poised for big, big success going forward. So I was pumped and thrilled that, uh, that she took... A lot of time to to join me on the podcast and to talk to, with me about her background and just some of the great things she, she's been doing with with her team up there. Before we get to the interview, uh, I have a two books for the recommendation portion of the podcast. The first one I am reading "Gone Girl" by Jillian Flynn. It is a very very good book. Really really, uh, it's like a thriller. Really good. Uh, the movie is also fantastic. I've Watched the movie first a couple of years ago at school with one of my roommates. Stars Ben Affleck, Rosamund Pike. Fantastic movie. The book is sensational so far. I'm flying through it. And the other book that I also picked up is Ethan Sherwood Strauss's new book called The Victory Machine. It is all about the Warriors dynasty the last five years. Uh, Ethan writes for The Athletic covering the Warriors, and I've just read the introduction, and I can just tell that it's going to be a great, great read. So looking forward to reading those two books, if anyone's looking for a couple books for the upcoming 4th of July weekend. So I'm going to hit the music, and when we come back is my interview recorded last week with the head women's basketball coach at Rhode Island College, Jenna Cosgrove. Joining me today on the Double Double is a special guest, the head women's basketball coach at Rhode Island College, Jenna Cosgrove. A Massachusetts native, she played her college ball at Endicott College and was named team captain her senior year. Cosgrove started her coaching career right after graduation at her high school alma mater before joining the women's basketball program at Fordham University in 2010. During her time at Fordham, Coach Cosgrove helped turn the program into a national power and helped the team earn their first Atlantic 10 championship and NCAA tournament bid in 2014. After seven years at Fordham, six as an official member of the coaching staff, she was named the head women's basketball coach at Rhode Island College in the summer of 2017. In her three years at the helm, she has guided the program to a 49-31 and record, including a 22-5 record in the 2019-2020 season and was named the 2020 Little East Conference Coach of the Year. She also had the opportunity to be an assistant coach in the 2017 Maccabi Games and helped Team USA win the gold medal. I'm thrilled she's taking the time to join me today. Coach, how's it going? It's great, David. Thank you so much for that introduction and for having me on today. Of course. So, so kind of let... Let's start at the beginning, Coach. As I mentioned, you grew up in Massachusetts. Just kind of how did you first fall in love with the game of basketball? Yeah, um, I come from a, a family of coaches. Uh, my grandfather, my uncles, I, I came from more of a football family, actually. Um, and so, you know, everything was competitive since the time I was young. My father, his two brothers, um, they all played football at the University of Maine um, on full scholarship. So, you know, it was just 
that came natural sports, all sports. I'm, I'm kind of the only one that went the basketball route. Um, but yeah, I grew up in Sharon, Mass, which is a small town, and it's actually where Bruce Pearl is from. So uh, he actually knows my family, and uh, my grandfather was able to coach him in baseball growing up. So just a little fun fact. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah. So um, yeah. So I, you know, I my grandfather coached. My uncle has, was a long time and winning his football coach to this day at the University of Maine. Mm-hmm. Um, so I grew up going to University of Maine football games uh, for as long as I can remember. Um, I think he he was coaching there um, even when, I mean, when I was born. He went back to his alma mater. He was at Boston College um, after doing a high school stint, and then he uh, made it to Maine and eventually was the head coach. So he actually now is the Kobe football coach. Yep. So he's kind of my mentor and, and someone that's inspired me. I you know, with the coaching profession, but, um, I think I've always had a knack for wanting to be a coach because of him and, and my grandfather who, um, they actually named the middle school football field after oh, him wow. in his name, uh, two years ago. So that's awesome. Um, yeah. So it's just come, came natural to love for sports. So you're growing up in, in Sharon, Massachusetts, a family of coaches. Were you a, a multi-sport athlete in high school or, or, or did you just stick just to basketball? Um, yeah, I, I, you know what? I would have played football if my mother let me. I loved football <laughs> um, and I wanted to play with my cousins and, you know, obviously my, my family was coaching. So, um, but no, I did, um, I played soccer, um, played basketball and played a lot of baseball growing up until uh-huh. I could no longer play with the boys, switched to softball and and ended up doing track. It was easier to manage track and also play basketball more year round and yeah. travel for AAU. But um, basketball was always my my first love. So, kind of, you're in high school. You're playing all these sports. You're doing AAU. What was your recruiting process like, and how did you end up choosing Endicott? Yeah, um, you know, it's funny. I, I think back, and I love my time at Endicott. I have my my best friends. You know, are from Endicott and I never knew about Endicott. So it came from recruiting. Um, you know, I was looking at a few D2 and, and D3 schools and, you know, the, I went on a few tours and my mom said, Hey, we got to go check out this school. I'd never heard of it. It's only about an hour from Sharon. So good distance. My parents were at every game, but what, you know, what drew me to Endicott was, was really, I mean, it's a beautiful school. It's, mm-hmm. it's a really close knit community. Very great, you know, great for D- division three athletics, huge commitment to athletics, um, I was choosing between there and Springfield College. Both schools had sport management. And at the time, when you're young, you know, you think you know what you want to do. I, I really had no idea, but I knew I wanted to be in sports. Uh-huh. Um, I loved the idea of coaching. Um, both schools have great sport management programs. Springfield's known for it. Yeah. Um, and I think it was Beverly and being on the beach that sold me a little more than Springfield <laughs> at the time. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's, how it, that's how it happened. So, Coach, it, it, it just seems like once junior or senior year uh, hits in college, and I just went through this myself at, at Wesleyan, there's so much pressure to, to kind of figure out what to do after graduation and, and what to do next. It's, it's everyone's kind of favorite question to ask you. Somehow all your friends start talking about that. Usually everyone kind of has a couple freakouts or like change of plans in there too. You, you mentioned that like just through your family, you always kind of had – uh, an interest in getting into coaching, but was 
in college, as you were trying to figure out your your next steps, what were you always thinking? Hey, I'm going to get into coaching, or or did you kind of uh, start thinking about other careers as well? Yeah, that's a good question. I um I remember my mom sitting with me when I was trying to choose a college, and she was like, "You'd be a great coach." And that always stuck with me. But when, like, just like you said, you're in the moment, you're a junior and senior and, you know, your, your mind's changing every second. And I really wasn't thinking about coaching. I was more, you know, very focused on the different opportunities and like within sport business and within mm-hmm. working at a company. And, you know, I was blessed that Endicott, you know, not just encouraged you, but made you do three internships oh, wow. minimum by the time you graduated. And, that really, that thankfully allowed me to, um, you know, usually they do it in the summer. I mean, um, excuse me, in January during the intercession, but because of being a, a winter season athlete, I had to do them in the summer. And thankfully I did an internship at, um, with minor league baseball. I did one at a sport, uh, facility. I did one, um, on state street in Boston, at, um, within sales, selling sports software to companies. So, I really got a taste of this, you know, the sport management, the business side um, that I was really, I think I was most interested in. Mm-hmm. And so when I graduated, it was, you know, I, I still was all over the map, but that was kind of the goal uh, with no, nothing so specific. Um, but I think the best thing I did for the first time in my life, my mother would say, because I was, I'm very rigid. I'm always keeping busy. I'm never just like, not working or, you know, relaxing. I, I came home the summer I graduated. I, I lived in Newport, Rhode Island with my twin sister. I took time off and I worked weddings and, you know, it's a great beach down there. Yeah. I don't know. Um, and I did something a little out of my character that two or three months, probably within two months, I was like, I was exploring different things, you know, different opportunities online. And I was like, I want to coach. Uh-huh. So I really, sometimes when I'm mentoring my own athletes and they're all stressed out and they're trying to figure out what's next, I say, you know, if you don't know, it's not a bad thing to step away for a little bit and think about it instead of jumping into something you don't want to do. Right. And I'm just grateful for that because I wouldn't have ended up at Fordham. Mm-hmm. Um, I really don't believe that. I think everything happens for a reason. And I took that, uh, summer I lived in Newport and then I started I started by researching to understand that there's a whole world of coaching beyond division three where yeah I, I saw that there was the opportunity to be a director of basketball operations and I'm like what's that you know I'm in this d3 world that I didn't know what that was so I was like wow that sounds interesting like you know I could use that my sport management degree I, you know I know the game um, I played and you know, you're involved with coaching. So mm-hmm. that's what triggered me. Um, but it wasn't until the summer after I graduated, um, you know, and really just, just to go off that, I stopped doing what I was doing in Newport. All good things come to an end sometime. And I ended up coaching, assistant coaching in high school mm-hmm. back at Sharon. And I ended up carrying over and helping with AAU and drawing connections. And it all led me to that next summer of, that next spring of applying for these jobs to get into coaching. That's awesome. And and, and I have one question just before we get into that about uh, the internships uh, opportunities at Endicott. One, one thing I learned while researching for this podcast is that you also had the opportunity to intern with the New England Patriots. 
during the, the 2007 season. And just for any listeners who may not be familiar with the, these dates in, in NFL history, that was the year that the Patriots went 18-1, and losing to my beloved New York Giants in the Super Bowl. Tom Brady set the record, <laughs> 50 touchdown passes. Randy Moss had 20, caught a record 23. And some still say that the 2000 Patriots team is in the conversation for truly the best football teams of all time. Kind of how did you get involved with that internship? And just what was it like being with them during the, you know, such a great season? Yeah, I mean, I sometimes I forget. We're blessed over here in New England. I don't mean to rub it in, but you know, we <laughs> won a lot of championships. Um, but like I said, I was like a, I was like a kid that I, I knew I had to do some internships. I really wanted to gain experience in everything I could. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes my older self says, you know, chill. I should have chilled out a little bit more. But um, I'm grateful because I, I think I was. I think I had two internships at the time and this one was more part-time that I could manage. And it was awesome. It was, um, the quality control program at Gillette. So it was its own separate program. Okay. I can't, you know, I could, I could tell you, but then I'd be lying. I wasn't like with the players or, you know, the front office staff, that would have been really neat. Um, but you know, it was, it was almost like you, you were testing the behind the scenes operations during, a game, not just a game, but it could be an event that's okay. taking place at the stadium. But I would go to Patriots games and, you know, and I would be asked to test different, um, it could be uh, different areas of the stadium, um, concessions, everywhere from concessions to fan behavior and um, customer service. So it was, it was definitely unique and a little scary at times because, mm. I mean, Foxborough, uh, you know, Foxborough and the area and New England Patriots fans are, are crazy diehards. And <laughs> when you're trying to leave a stadium and, you know, at midnight or after a game and you're by yourself and I had to get into the, um, underneath the stadium where they uh-huh. had, we'd go down there and we'd, we'd do a report on the game, the fan experience and every, you know, our little agenda, what we, you know, I had different checkpoints I had to get to and I had to report certain things. So, it was definitely an experience, and uh, thanks for bringing it up. Sometimes I forget that even happened. <laughs> of course. So, as you mentioned, you after leaving Newport, Rhode Island, you get into coaching as an assistant at your alma mater for the Sharon High School uh, girls varsity team. Just what was it like uh, coaching at the high school level, and, and kind of just you know girls who are still really close in age to to you were at that time. Yeah, I um. You know, I felt like I was more of like a big sister um, when I did that. I was, you know, I just graduated college, but also, you know, it, it really helps me now because I have young assistants and it and, and I've been in their shoes mm-hmm. like right out of college. And you, the girls, when I was at back at Sharon, they knew who I was. Some of them knew who I was. I was obviously much older, but, um, you know, they really look up to a young aspiring coach and someone that had played in college. So, um, you know, I loved it. Um, I volunteered, so I wasn't getting, getting paid. I volunteered and, and I, and I just really enjoyed it. And it, that's what sparked me to, I had a connection with one of the players and their, their, their father. And I, they asked me to help coach AAU and I just couldn't get enough of it. I love mm. being around the kids. I help. I love mentoring them. I love being able to help guide them onto their next phase of where they wanted to go to college. And that's, 
I think, you know, all these little steps in that one year, what really triggered me to get into the coaching profession at the next level, you know, at high school, it's, you know, it's different. It's, I wanted to make it, I think that experience is what led me to want to make it a full-time career. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously I'm, I think I, I can be a little tough. So I, I was like, I think I'm meant for the next level. Um, <laughs> you know, I think that's just my makeup. And I, you know, I, like I said, I explored those opportunities and I, I was like, I'm going to go for it. Yeah. So as, as you mentioned that, that following summer of 2010, you joined the women's basketball program at Fordham university, uh, up in the Bronx in New York city as an administrative assistant. Just what was that experience like being a part of a big-time D1 uh, women's basketball program? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a true New Englander, so that was one of the biggest um, biggest risks I've ever taken. Um, and I, I don't regret it at all, but I remember being very torn, and I was, I was offered an assistant Division three spot, um, in upstate New York, actually, at the time. And I remember being offered the position to go to Fordham. And I had called my uncle, who was my mentor, and I called maybe my grandfather, my father. And it, and it was a really tough decision. I think I was, for once, in, I'm going to step out of my comfort zone. Um, I, I ended up going to Fordham, and the situation was unique. Um, I was on a staff that was all new that year, and I was the the youngest one on staff. Um, but I had originally applied for the director of operations position. I got a call from the head coach um, and the head coach and I spoke, she was really impressed with a lot, mostly my, a lot of my internships mm-hmm. um, and my experience, not just with playing basketball. So again, I, I credit that to Endicott. And um, so it ended up blowing over. She, she hired someone she knew that was, had division one, you know, experience with either, I think being a manager or something like that, you know, and I, and so then about a month later, I think it was, um, late July, uh, maybe early August, I got a call that she had two more positions that opened up. And what I never realized was that at higher levels, um, like Fordham is at, they have a lot of positions. There's video coordinators, there's player development, there's, so there's so many different positions and, so she had this position open up. She brought me down for an interview. Um, and like I said, you know, small, small town girl from Sharon, Mass in the suburbs. And I'm in the middle of the Bronx taking <laughs> a train on an interview. And I was, I was scared. So, um, but, you know, I, that was the first, my le- first time in my life I really, really stepped out of my comfort zone. And it forever changed me. So, um, you know, just to tell you, because, you know, most people wouldn't know this, but like, the, so that year after my first year at Fordham, the head coach got let go. Yeah. And so the whole staff, you know, we, we got let go. And I was, you know, as, as, although I was the administrative assistant, it was really like an assistant director of operations position. I, I did everything with the director of ops and I was we, every practice, every game. And, you know, it was an experience, you know, it was an experience of a lifetime. I was at Allen Fieldhouse and we were playing, you know, Kansas and, um, so, you know, when I was 22 or 23 years old, um, so we all got let go and they ended up coming to me to ask me to keep the program running in limbo of hiring a new coach. Mm-hmm. And in retrospect, I ended up, 
I ended up, you know, manage, you know, just overseeing the strength and conditioning, making sure the girls were okay. And I'm, I'm like a year older than some of these seniors. So they ended up using my opinion in the interview process. Oh, wow. So I had the opportunity. So the, um, athletic director at the time, and I don't, I hadn't even been there a full year. So I was still new. Um, he ended up calling me one day after walking around two candidates and saying, all right, Jenna, you know, who would you hire if you had to hire someone tomorrow? And I said, well, if I was one of these girls and after meeting both, I, I told them who I would, who I would hire. And, you know, I think it was a no brainer for them as well. But, um, and that was kind of, that was that I ended up being asked to stay on staff and I was bumped up to director of operations. Um, I was in that role for four seasons and I, you know, I really grew in that, in that role. I would, I think that role helped me a lot in becoming a head coach just because you're so involved with all aspects of an athletic program and of your individual program and budgeting and scheduling and um you're asked to just manage the whole team in a sense um outside of the court so right. you know big travel parties everything of that nature so um I was in that role I ended up um, you know, my head coach knew I wanted to be a coach, so I ended up getting bumped up when the opportunity presented itself to be an assistant. Um, I was in that role, which was, you know, for uh, three years. And, you know, sometimes I'm like, man, I was there a, a while. I was there right. for seven years. But I, I attest everything I do now as a head coach to the coach that I learned from, Stephanie Gately. So, yeah. um, you know, terrific coach. We She... She literally took Fordham from being the bottom of the Atlantic 10 and dead last and one of the, you know, not a good, not a great college basketball program at the time to being one of the best and winning an Atlantic 10 championship in, in three years and still dominant to this day. They won one um, in 2019. So, yep. um, so I, you know, every now where when I look at it today, it's, you know, building that culture and everything that we're trying to do is, is comes right from that. So as you mentioned, the 2013, 2014 season uh, was one to remember for Fordham. The team captured the first Atlantic 10 championship and, and NCAA tournament uh, appearance in, in women's basketball history at Fordham. Can you just kind of talk about that whole experience of that season of just making the tournament and just making history at Fordham? Yeah. Um, it was awesome. And it's, you know, I, I talk about that a lot and sometimes I, to my own players, um, because that team that won in 2014 was not the most talented team. Mm-hmm. Um, that Dayton team we played in the championship was by far more talented on paper, but that team had great chemistry. Everyone was unselfish and they were just tough as nails and they bought into everything that we were doing. And it was, it was truly a special season. Um, because of the group that was that you know that won that championship and the experience of obviously winning the A10 championship and you know at a prominent you know great basketball conference the Atlantic 10 and we hosted the you know we had a great host party for the selection show in our yep. gym it was awesome um, you know we were on we were on a, you know different different um, TV stations and we had a lot of actually TV games that year. It was just, it was awesome. And it was, 
it was a really, you know, incredible experience. And I'll, I'll never forget the experience, obviously playing at, um, we played at Baylor university in the mm-hmm. first round and, you know, we took our, you know, giant charter flight with our band and our <laughs> training team. And, and I was at the time the director of ops. So I was in charge of, of the entire travel party right. and the logistics and, and I, I get to say that I was in the operations meeting with just the director of operations or an assistant coach and the head coaches. So I was sitting right next to Kim Mulkey, wow. um, to before the, you know, before that round started. Um, so that was pretty cool. Um, I was like, do I, I don't know if I belong at this table, but, <laughs> um, I'm going to just rock it and take some notes. Yep. So, uh, so yeah, it was incredible. And, you know, we ended up playing Cal in that first round and we lost by one at, at the very buzzer. So, uh, that was really tough. Right. Um, you know, and that just, that showed the girls, obviously they could have played with anybody and mm-hmm. we would have been playing Baylor in that next round. So, um, yeah, it was an awesome experience. So, so the following season you get promoted from being the director of basketball, from being the director of basketball operations to now being, uh, an assistant coach on the coaching staff. And one of your responsibilities was to help uh, develop and work with the front court players. And I'm always curious about this coach because I'm a, a front court player myself. Just what are some of the or the like the key principles that you try to teach and believe about front court play? Well, first it was getting them to, you know, believe, you know, trust me and, and believe in me that I was going to be helping them with the front court because I'm five foot three. Um, <laughs> So my experience is with the guards, but, um, you know, that was the best thing I ever did was move over to the post because it just makes you a more well-rounded coach. Yeah. Um, but a, a lot of it is just repetition and footwork. So we preach that every day. Um, and, you know, even now, same thing. It doesn't matter what level you're at. It's, it's the footwork. It's the repetition, constant repetition in the toughness. So one thing that uh, was ongoing during your time at Fordham was, you know, this was especially going on in the NBA, was that the game literally, it felt like, changed overnight. The Warriors were now the class of the NBA, winning championships. Steph Curry uh, had literally changed the game of basketball forever. And all of a sudden, everyone, front court players included, were shooting tons and tons of three-pointers. As the game was kind of changing around you, did that affect or, or change the way that you coach the front court players at all or just the way that you guys try to play at Fordham as, as a team? That's a great question. You know, I think it did. I think that you see more and more now that teams are playing with a lot more guards on the floor and you've got to get these post players to buy into the spacing on the floor and being able to step out and shoot threes. And, and I think at Fordham, we had some really good post players that were able to shoot the three and really space the floor out for us mm-hmm. in our system. So, um, you know, I, my kids laugh cause they, they know that I love big kids that can shoot. Um, <laughs> so, you know, and, 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 you know, it's also versatility. If you can have a, a forward that can put the ball to the floor and not just be a, a you know, a historical back to the basket post player, you can have much more success in, in your offense. Right. So, um, yeah, it definitely has changed the game and it's continuing to, you know, be that way. And I think if I remember correctly, it was your last year at Fordham. Another one of your responsibilities was you were the, now the recruiting coordinator. And just for the listeners who may not know, we've kind of talked about Fordham is in New York City. It's in the Bronx. Uh, pro, especially in pro sports, people love to talk about how players want to go play in cities. They, they, they want to play in New York or L.A. or Miami. 
was that a factor? And and did you try to utilize just Fordham's geography being in New York City to your advantage at all during recruiting? And if so, you know, did that help? Oh yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, Fordham's a huge draw, and for those that don't know, it's because it's Fordham sits on a beautiful campus. Yep. In the Bronx, um, beautiful gated campus on the Rose Hill campus, and you step out those gates, and it's all gated. You step out the gates, and there's the Metro North train that, in 20 minutes, literally two steps off campus is the Metro North. You're in Grand Central Station, so you get the best of both worlds. You really do get uh, the truest campus, in my opinion, in New York City, but you also get the, the city. Yeah. Um, you get both. And if you never want to go to the city, you don't have to. And it's really, um, you know, at the time I was the recruiting coordinator for domestic recruiting. And Mm -hmm. because Fordham is in New York city, we recruit a lot of international players and, um, Angelica Shamilo, who's now the head coach at FBU, um, who's our associate head coach at Fordham at the time, she was our international recruiter. Um, and it was, I think it got to be a lot, so we tried to just separate the responsibility yeah. because we predominantly did have, you know, five or six, maybe half the team at one point be international. Oh, wow. um, but, you know, just to give you some insight, like, you know, I obviously own the New England area just because that's my bread and butter of where I'm from. Um, it was tough tapping into, like, a West, uh, a Midwest kid and getting them to want to visit New York City. Right. I think kids either want to be in New York City or they don't. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, one of their best players right now currently on their roster is, is Anna DeWolf. And I recruited, saw Anna DeWolf play when she was, I believe in eighth grade. Um, I've got a lot of main connections because of my uncle and got friends up there. And so, you know, I, that was kind of my like project for the few years. And, it, <laughs> you know, once I got that family to campus though, and it was like, and there were three kids, one that's now at Indiana, one that's at GW, and, and Anna was at Fordham. Once I got on the campus, they were like, all their fears were, were right. you know, forgotten. Right. So that was the challenge. Um, but that's similar to me. I was very reluctant <laughs> for going on that interview. So, um, you know, I think uh, you just have to be able to be open-minded when experiencing schools. But, yeah, that's a, that's a school where the opportunities are endless. It's a terrific academic school, and, and it's in New York City. So in the summer of 2017, you get hired at Rhode Island College to be the new head women's basketball coach, and you were someone who just spent the previous seven years at the Division One level. What kind of made you want to come down and coach at the Division Three level? Yeah, I um, you know, I hit a point in my life where I was, you know, I I really spent my time at Fordham trying to, you know, that was like my, building my career, and mm-hmm. but that's New York isn't who I am. I am a big, big family person. That's number one, kind of what I'm about. And I wanted to be closer to family and be in a location where I wanted to start raising, you know, having my life and eventually hopefully having a family, which not yet, but, um, you know, and that was back home. So I knew when the opportunity was going to be presented that I would be ready. Um, and you know, I'm a division three athlete. That's who I was. And so you know, I knew, you know, I knew that the levels, you know, there's different challenges and, and, you know, everything presents itself differently, but I was really um, intrigued when the job opened up just because of one, the location it's Providence is um, 30 minutes from where I grew up yep. and I love the area. 
And truly, when I went on the interview, I was very blown away, and I did not expect to move it as much as I did. Um, I didn't know much about it, and you know, it's a, it's an awesome spot. So, you know, yep. it really worked out for me in that sense. Yeah, Providence is is one of like the hidden gems on in. In the Northeast, it's one of my little favorite uh, cities after going to the Brown camp up there for a few summers. Providence was always really, really nice. But, yeah. But in, but in Division Three, unlike Division One, where, where you just came from, there are no off-season workouts where, where the coaches are allowed to be at. And, you know, you're inheriting a program. You're, you're taking over. How did you go about creating or building relationships with the women in the new program at Rhode Island College, you know, without having that advantage of being able to get on the court with them uh, right away? That, that was hard. Obviously, I was trying to find my identity as a new head coach mm-hmm. and being a first-year head coach. I think I needed to let them trust me and get to know me. That was number one. And I was hired very late. So I was hired in August. Yeah. Um, even though the job became open, I believe it was early June. So, um, you know, number one, I remember I got hired like the right, right before school started. Um, and I went to moving day and I was calling the freshmen. I got a list and, um, I tried to just meet as many of them as possible and Mm -hmm. familiarize myself and, and try and spend as much time with one-on-one meetings just so they could get to know me and I could get to know them. Um, but yeah, that was a big change from division one, not being able to be hands-on and, and help the off season development. Um, you know, obviously I remember it from my days playing, but, um, you know, it's totally different. There's not a lot of time to work on skill work and, and develop that. So, you know, we would have a lot of meetings and, um, you know, you, but you really have that first team meeting to kind of set your expectations and, and, you know, tell them what you're about and, it's kind of scary, especially when it's a new coach. So yeah. You're kind of, you know, and they're not, these kids don't know anything about you. You have no win-loss record, um, you know, and, and so that's tough too. And, and it was, I was inheriting a program that was struggling. Um, you know, at the, Rhode Island College is, has, has had great success, mm-hmm. um, both basketball programs, men and women. And when I got there, they were both not in a good place. So, um, you know, trying to get them to, buy into me turning around the culture and turning around the program was was my first challenge and for those first few months and and you know coach i'm, I'm happy that you brought up uh, the word culture because because i feel like and and it is one of my favorite things to ask the coaches who come on the podcast because as some loyal listeners know it's like this super popular buzzword right now in in coaching but it's not a one uh one uh size fits all type description for programs culture even though it's the same word, can mean and be very different things from program to program, school to school. How would you describe what your culture is at Rhode Island College? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And culture has been the most important thing to our success. And I learned that at Fordham because the way Stephanie Gately changed the culture there in such a short time was the reason for them becoming successful so fast. Um, and you know, our culture, you know, is based on, is based on attitude, effort, and I would say toughness, um, and, and chemistry. We do a lot in order to build it, but we have, we set the expectations and, um, you know, I think it's just that commitment and 
the commitment to want to be great, to want to be better. Um, you know, I've, I've been really lucky that I've, you know, the reason some of the, our success this year is, is mainly due to just, I had great kids mm-hmm. that bought into coming every day with great energy, having a great attitude and being embodying who, what we're about, which is that toughness and owning, owning what they can control. Um, our motto this year was, was, uh, be great. And I love it. I think it kind of describes me as a coach. So it might stick, but my assistant helped me with that, Sarah Middleton. And it's, uh, greatness. It's, you know, great is, um, to be great is, um, greatness requires effort, attitude, toughness. So it's that, um, acronym. So, um, it's just, we've, you know, and I you know, defensively is, is it defensively? That's kind of what we've owned as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I took that from Fordham. So, you know, we were always, and they, they still are, they, you know, up there in the country being one of the best defensive teams. And, and that has been our the key to our success. Even when my first year, when we faced a lot of challenges and, and weren't very good, we were all three years since I've been there, we've been number one in, in scoring defense. So that's, yeah. I think, I just feel like in my three years, um, I've had kids that have truly bought in and, you know, and and it's been great to see it kind of come full circle in the third year. Yeah, so you mentioned your your first year at Rhode Island College was a bit of a struggle. You guys went nine and seventeen, but the following year was almost the opposite. As you went eighteen and nine, you had the conference defensive player of the year and the rookie of the year. And not only did you finish top of the Little East in scoring defense, you finished fourteenth in the country in scoring defense. And I'm always interested by this coach because you know defense is hard. You know, even the best defense once the ball's in the air, it's kind of out of your control. The ball can still go in, and really good teams, their defenses can vary. Some teams trap and press all game. Others play a 2-3 zone. Pick and roll coverages vary by team to team. I guess just to start, what are just some of your key defensive beliefs and principles? Yeah, uh, we spend uh, the majority of practice in in the beginning on defense. And, um, uh, you know, I'm a big man-to-man person, so Mm -hmm. um, we we don't do a ton of zone. Um, so we teach kids how to properly close out. Um, but we play a, a tremendous help defense, um, you know, where right, where we force baseline and the help, we always help the helper. And, um, you know, we get the kids to understand that they've got to be able to close out on their man, but also be ready to help. And yeah. If you can't defend and you can't rebound, you struggle to get on the floor um, for our team because that's what we're about. Um you know, fortunately this year we, we, we had some great talent, so we were able to put the ball in the basket. Yeah. But, um, you know, defensively, we do so much. I mean, we, we try and help develop their quickness and, and, and work on angles because not everybody is great at closing out. Um, you know, we talk about spacing. You know, I've got, we've got kids that, you know, post players specifically that are not used to getting out in the perimeter and defending a post player that can shoot. So we talk about spacing. And so – we just do a lot of individual breakdown, but it's it's the team concept that's most important because of the the man to man help defense. Interesting. And one thing during my time in college at Wesleyan, especially on the defense side of the ball, uh, was that obviously there's tons of awesome players in the NESCAC and really all over the country in Division Three basketball, and it would sometimes be a challenge for us getting ready to play one of these great 
offensive players in our conference, whether it was like a guy like James Heskett or Kenneth Gilmore, Bobby Casey, you know, I could go down the list, these tremendous offensive players, because you don't want to go too far away from what your team's set principles are and what you've been programmed in since the first day of practice. But also, these guys are so good that you kind of have to game plan specifically for them. How do you approach these games where the other team has an awesome player and, and, and do you adjust sometimes from what your principles are? Yeah, great question. Uh, we do. I mean, our conference, you know, will face player, whether they're a dominant guard or a dominant big, and, you know, we, we will have to. We, we, but we don't get too far away from our principles. So okay. I guess I wouldn't say that we change up much what we do, but we do adjust. So we might, you know, whether it might be, um, you know, first off, a specific person is always going to be on that, that dominant player. And, and we try and motivate that individual to rise to the occasion. Yeah. And, we, and, and that, that's always been a big challenge. You know, I, what we try and say, you know, we, we give them numbers. You know, this is what they average. We're trying to get them to average this when they play us. Um, as far as what we do on the court, um, you know, what's, if there's a dominant big, I'm not one to go say just go double them. I think okay. we, we've been very much a team that this year stayed true to what we did. Um, I feel like, with at least my program, when you throw something in that they're not used to doing, um, they, they get confused. Yeah, and same, they, same they, with they us. Get, yeah, <laughs> they get on the court and then they're like, wait, what? Like, yeah. I'm just used to doing what I'm doing. So we more talk about um, different skill that they have and, you know, right shoulder, left shoulder, or they have, you know, force and left. And, um, you know, we use the term tag, which some people use as a box and one. If someone's mm-hmm. that dominant, I might say, don't let them catch the ball. Yeah. I don't want them taking the ball up. Um, but no, we don't change too much of what we do. I think I made some mistakes my first year and second year, and I still make mistakes all the time. But yeah. my first couple of years coaching, I tried to do so much different, you know, something different off a ball screen, whether I introduced icing, which some people call downing or, mm-hmm. um, you know, switching. And, what, and, it, and they were so confused about who was doing what, when that I just learned you got to keep it simple because, you know, that just works better for us. Yeah. That was, that was something similar for us too. We, we, we generally believed in, you know, not, not going too far from, from the principal, but make it as difficult for them as possible to, you know, if they're going to get their 18 points, try to make them take four or five more shots, kind of like the Shane Battier approach to defense when he would go up against like Kobe Bryant. If Kobe's going to have 20, make him have score on 25 shots instead of 15. Right. Exactly. Yeah. We, you know, is it for the defense, we just say, especially if you've got, just for example, like, you know, if they've got two guards that are really dominant. We want to take away those guards from scoring all their points. We want to mm-hmm. make someone else beat us. Mm-hmm. So we um, we do a lot with that in our scouting report, and we, you know, we give them challenges as far as, you know, we were the best rebounding team in the, in the conference and, and up there in Division Three. So we would say, you know, they average this many rebounds, but we're going to out-rebound them by 15, yeah, no less. For sure. Um and so we gave them challenges every night to, just so they had goals in mind as far as from the defensive end. So, and perhaps just another really unique part about just Division Three uh, winter sports, not, not just basketball, but uh, all of winter sports, is that, you, is that basically you start October 15th around, around the country. You're going full steam ahead. You know, you guys, this past year, coming off the 18-win season— off to a great start, nine and one, only losing to Williams, who eventually went to the Sweet Sixteen. You know, you're in the heart of the season. You're playing great basketball. You're nine and one, 
and all of a sudden finals hits the the focus of the team and the players shifts away from the court to uh school and their exams and then it's christmas break where everyone kind of goes home and uh recuperates from just the stressful finals week how do you you as a coach approach this kind of just mid-season uh break that can be anywhere from like 10 days to even in some some sometimes for me it was like 20 days oh yeah um that's the worst (laughs) you know that's that breaks a killer and i think you know it's really just it's commitment you know i think the most special thing right now for me you know being able to talk about it is i've got kids that that, that want to win a championship, that don't mm-hmm. want to lose. And they understand that it, that's what it takes. It takes when no one's watching, what are you doing? And that's what I'm trying to instill in them right now during this whole coronavirus is, you know, you, you don't have, you'll never get this time back. And then, you know, where you have three months to just sit around and you don't have, you're not going here and there, you know, and making plans and going on vacation left and right. You can put in the effort, you can get out and run and do things you're not comfortable doing. Um, but that's, that's my challenge to them. We can't do anything with them. So it's really, um, you know, it's tough, but it's, it's just telling them that, you know, you better come back in shape and they know it because (laughs) they'll be, they'll be hurting on that January 1st and January 2nd. We can get ready to play January 3rd or 4th. Yeah. So they don't have time to not be in shape. Right. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, I remember it, you know, obviously when I played and that break could be like you said, 20 days or, or, you know, it's just, you know, we try, we try and schedule so that we're playing, you know, we're not ending the ninth or 10th. Like if there's any way that we can end the 15th, I think this year, we last two years, we had a game on the 18th. Anything we could do to cut it um, is very helpful. Right. So you guys are on a great season and, and you finished 13 and three in conference this past year and you advance at the conference championship game where you're matched up with Eastern Connecticut State for your third matchup of the year with them. You had already beaten them twice, I'm pretty sure. Just what is it like from a coaching perspective when you're getting ready for that third matchup against the team? Because I only know from the player's perspective, it it can be challenging at times because you feel so you know used to the matchups and the scout, but things can change, and you don't want to uh, get too complacent. Uh, with just the scan report or anything. So, so kind of how do you approach that game, uh, that third matchup from a coach's perspective? Yeah. What was tough about that, uh, David was we had a week, more than a week off before, um, we had a game in the playoffs. We mm. had the last game of the season for us was a bye, And then we had a first round by, so we, oh, we wow. had a lot of time off. Um, it helped us because, uh, Wilson McBarrow, who was the previous year Rookie of the Year and probably one of the most dominant posts in the conference besides Easterns, um, she had time to rest. So, you know, preparing, um, you know, we won that, that playoff game, the semi game, but then then Easterns game got postponed due to an accident on the highway. And oh, wow. So <laughs> there was a lot of things that went into play where we were kind of just almost, wait, you know, waiting. Um, that was a little tough, but... We never stopped. Um, we, my, the kids, and as a coaching staff, we were determined to tell them, you know, you don't take anything lightly. Yeah. Um, and not only that, we've got, you know, they've got everything to lose. We, we have, we have something to prove. We, we never, we haven't won. Yeah. Um, you know, we're the team that was in last place two years ago, two years prior, and we're the team that had never been in this position yet. So, uh, you know, they were 
so amped up and confident, but in a good way. I, I have to be honest. I mean, I think it was, you know, a very good confidence, not like, a, oh, we're going to go in there and beat them. Mm-hmm. It was an excitement of like, look how far we've come. Right. And, you know, I, I remember when we first played Eastern, I couldn't believe how well we played. I was like, <laughs> I, you know, I knew it was going to be a battle because they didn't lose to anyone else the whole season in the conference. Yeah. Except to us. So I was almost like a little shocked. I mean, one of our players was out, like three of our losses came with this one player out, our, one of our captains, and she was out for us Eastern and, and we still beat them. And so, you know, we we're finally playing them for a third time. And, you know, it's really hard to beat a team three times. And, and the kids know that. So, you know, I really, looking back, it still hurts. We we weren't ready because I don't think we weren't ready basketball-wise, but mentally we had never been there and they were nervous. And I think experience goes a long way in a championship game. Um, we were on the road and, you know, Eastern's a terrific team. So, sure. you know, it's not like we were going to – nothing was going to be easy for either team. Um, Preparation-wise – you know, I think we knew personnel and we knew everything they were capable of. And our weakness all year was exactly what they did. They went into a zone where we were a very athletic team and um, and the zone froze us. But we were ready for it. I mean, we faced that the whole second semester and, and prepped for it. And uh, But, you know, I, I do think experience goes a long way. So I'm hoping it, it, it goes in our favor, you know, next year. For sure. So as, as we kind of approach the end here, Coach, I, I have a few more questions. One of them is you talked about in your culture uh, how big of a role that, that toughness plays. And, and toughness is, is kind of like culture in that it can mean a lot of different things. It can be like a certain level of physical toughness that uh, just like you know you, p- people say toughness of being able to fight through screens and boxing out. And also toughness can be you know the mental toughness part and, and the resilience so, so when you are preaching toughness uh, as a core principle to the women in your program, w- what kind of things uh, fall under that that toughness umbrella? Yeah, we, um, you know, I think what comes to mind is the willingness to, to challenge their comfort zone. My goal is to get them to step out of their comfort zone and reach limits they didn't think they could reach. I think, you know, and part of that is grabbing every piece of potential that they have in them and um, you know, that's what we're trying to teach them from day one. So, um, you know, we do a Cheney chart every day in practice. I got that from, from Fordham and that's named after John Cheney. And mm-hmm. what it is, is, is it's a chart that you record, um, all the details. And so it's, it's everything but scoring. So every day, um, we have a manager, um, or maybe it's a player that can't practice because of an injury, but typically our manager is keeping, this Cheney chart and you know if you miss a layup with no one watching you know that's minus five or with no defense excuse me that's minus five but if you dive on a loose ball and you have a great or you have a great box out that's plus four plus three um so it's you know we're big on the detail aspect and a lot of that is toughness and it's it's mental toughness as well Mm -hmm. um and you know we have on there mental lapses you know you got to be focused and that's you know maybe minus three um and, but an offensive rebound, which is a big part of our game as well, that's that's plus two in everything we do. So um, it teaches them not to focus just on the scoring, but right. on all the little things and no box outs. That's a big that's a big one on our chart. Um, so that's that's a big um, that's a big 
big uh, way that we teach that we teach the toughness. And if they think they're being tough, you know, I could go back to the chart and say, well, you know, I, you know, you're not getting all these little detail points for toughness on the chart. Gotcha. So, so another unique thing about the women's college game uh, is that it's way more like the pro game than uh, the college men's game, especially because you guys play four 10-minute quarters. And I haven't played in, in that uh, kind of structure, you know, high school's four eight-minute quarters. But just from, from the coaching perspective, does, does having those four quarters affect the way that uh, you make in-game uh, decisions at all? I like, I love the quarters. Um, you know, thankfully I've only had that as a head coach. Yeah. Um, I feel like we, you know, it was obviously that was transitioned into the game before I got to Rhode Island college. And, um, honestly, I, you get so used to something. I think it's beneficial in my, my experience, it's beneficial for, um, giving kids a breather and a, you know, break, keeping them out of foul trouble. Um, you know, and, but it also, it really forces, it really forces you to do a lot of in-game situations in practice, mm-hmm. um, like a ton of them, especially at that last minute when you can advance the ball. There's a big learning curve, though, for the freshmen that come in because the game is so different. Yeah. Um, so that part, you know, that part is frustrating. I think, you know, that, you know, between the men's game, the women's game, high school, the rules are really different. You know, yeah. you got to teach. You can't have your hands on players that contact when with the ball handler, you know. A lot of freshmen struggle with that when they get to college, sure. you know. So, um, but, um, you know, I think you get used to it. And uh, I don't really, it, it, you know, I'm, I wouldn't even know how to adjust. I would have a whole new adjustment period if I had to be able to get rid of it. So as, uh, another rule that, that I really like that, that the women's game has adopted, as, as you mentioned, is the ability to advance the ball after a timeout in the last minute of games. It's one thing that makes the NBA game so exciting and also just makes – uh, the end of women's college basketball game is so exciting because truly a team is never really out of it. As much as we may love to watch the Christian Leitner play from Duke in, in 92, it's it's a lot more fun to watch kind of like more uh, opportunities to score at, at the end of games. Kind of because I've never played with this rule before, Coach. How do you approach uh, that situation? Are there fundamental things that, that you know go into those types of sets or, or just like – how do you uh, approach uh, that in practice and just getting ready for for that type of situation? Oh yeah, I mean, for, right off the bat, you've got to teach that once you get that rebound. So if there's a miss and you get that rebound under a minute, you can't dribble if you want to advance the ball. You have to okay. just you just have to get the rebound, call a timeout. Once you put the ball to the floor, you can't advance it. Interesting. So okay. you know that's a big that's mental. So that's a you know that's why a lot of times you know I'm coaches especially me i'm screaming on the sideline (laughs) you might have to call a timeout and be like all right here's the situation you you have if the say it's a free throw and it goes in before passing it for inbounding it you've got to call a timeout immediately tell the ref you're going to call a timeout you know and then if it misses you have to you have to get the rebound and not dribble yeah so those are technical things that they've got to know right off the bat um you know obviously it makes that that rule right there alone makes games like you said anyone could be in any you know in the game at any given point you know you, you can't let up until the buzzer sounds because yeah. if, if you're down you know you advance the ball and you can, you, you can call a quick hitter which typically we do if we're we're advancing the ball and you know we need a you need a basket you, you just drop a quick hitter and you're you're already in the half court set right um 
you know, and so I think it's, it's a lot of practicing. It's a lot of strategizing. Um, it also, if you're, you know, if you're on the flip side, if you're winning the game, it allows you to have a lot of security. Mm-hmm. Um, so that part I do love, I love being able to, you know, being able to, before winning, you know, call that timeout and advance the ball and, you know, kind of just stall a little bit. Right. Um, so yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely interesting to watch, but, um, we face a lot, a lot of close games and it comes down to that. As you mentioned before, coach, and, uh, we're in what truly is now like the true off season where we're recording this on, on June 19th. Obviously the coronavirus pandemic has altered every aspect of kind of normal life here in the U S but as you mentioned, you know, it, there's still optimism for a season this this fall and getting ready for that. Each kid or in your program may have different resources available to them based on where they're from and kind of what are what's open in their state or their region of the state versus uh, another player. How are you helping the women in your program train and get ready for for next season just with everything going on? Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and it's been it's been a obviously a challenging time for everybody, and everyone's facing something different. I think as a team, you know, we've done you know a lot of done some Zoom calls and things like that. I tried to let them be for the most part. I think at some point, kids got really tired of being on the Zoom calls and <laughs> you know trying to do school, and so once finals ended, um, it's allowed me to obviously unite them by you know. I encourage them, which is all we can do. And, and I, you know, encourage them to get out and run and get out and be outside. And, you know, I think you've had enough kids have had enough time. Everyone has to be cooped up in their house. And there's a lot of, you know, there's not a lot of resources as far as gyms. Right. Um, you know, not every gym or not every region has gyms open yet. Everyone's in different phases. Um, you know, some don't have access to a gym, can't afford a gym maybe, um, or don't feel comfortable. So we don't encourage anything like that. I mean, we basically are saying we're trying to help them find resources. I mean, you could find everything in under the sun, um, on an app now. So, yeah. you know, whether it's a at home basketball, you know, um, app or, um, like you run app where you can, you know, be in a group with your teammates and, and challenge each other running. And to be honest, it's actually allowed me to kind of connect with my kids as a whole, um, more than I do, you know, as a whole, meaning the, the incoming freshmen. Mm-hmm. I think everyone's in the same boat, and it's allowed me to just right off the bat be able to, the freshmen are fully involved with conversation, and um, they're all just in the same position. So I have conversations now that I'm like, oh, wow, like, you know, we're not really talking about, you know, be proactive with answering text messages right. and, and, and things like that until September um, when they're on campus. So, but yeah, we, we try and just give them available resources that are online and um, through the apps on the phone and, and try and tell them that you can get a great workout in with, with body weight workouts and, and literally using your own two feet to run, which some of them hate to do, but they're going to like to do it now because they have no choice. They're going to be uncomfortable getting <laughs> outside and running. So it's been great. Um, like I said, it's, it's a way for us to help them too. I think mental health plays a big part in all of this and, I'm trying to encourage them that it's not just to stay. In, it's, you know, I think a lot of schools are going to see that, you know, kids are going to come back really out of shape. You know, you don't know what they're provided at home. You don't know what they're doing. 
And so it's really to help their mental health state as well. Gotcha. Well, Coach, I, I appreciate all the time. As, as we wrap up the podcast here today, I have five rapid-fire questions to end the podcast. All right. Number one, what is your favorite drill as a coach? Favorite drill? I like a three-line closeout drill. We do it almost every day. Okay. Do you have any... Columbia closeouts. Okay. Do you have any pregame superstitions? Pregame superstitions. I have to eat. (laughs) (laughs) I have to eat before. Always. Okay. In high school, it was eating a banana, but as a coach, you know, I can eat whatever I want, kind of. So, do you have any coaching pet peeves? Pet peeves? Um, Yes, I can't stand... I can't stand when the shirts aren't tucked in and the shorts are rolled up. Everyone rolls their shorts up now um, into their spandex. But I also, um, I can't stand when you don't get back to something in 24 hours. (laughs) Okay. If you could change one rule about college basketball, what would you change? One rule. I like the one-on-one. I think it makes it interesting. I don't like that we take two shots now. Go back to the one-on-one. And lastly... You know, you're a former college player. Do you ever still play with the team to, to show them that uh, Coach still still has game? Oh, yeah, once in a while. I like to rough them up a little bit. Um, <laughs> and they get, they get a kick out of it, but i gotta be, I got to get in better shape to do that. So. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Coach. Yeah, once in a while. All right, Coach. I appreciate all the time. As usual, on the double-double, we give the last word to our guests. Thank you so much for having me. So do you have anything you want to say to the to the great people of Providence, Rhode Island? All right, so yeah, I, just, I hope uh, I hope we're uh, on the mend. Hope we're on the mend with life right now, and everything will get get smoother and back. All right, coach. Appreciate all the time. Good luck. Good luck with everything going forward. All right. Thanks so much, David. Appreciate it. That'll do it for this episode of the Double Double. If you like this podcast, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever your podcast. You can also subscribe, rate, and review. Five stars would be much, much appreciated. You can also follow us on Twitter at DBL underscore DBL podcast. We'll be back next week. Until then, take care and make it a great day.